You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On this program, we discuss the complex issues and events that shape our world today. Of course, from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, that's a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. If you want to learn more about our publication or about Ayn Rand's ideas, best place to go is to our website, newideal.einrand.org, which I have uh, displayed up on the screen. If you're watching us today on social media, which is a fine way to watch us on Facebook, YouTube, or Periscope, you can always do that. But if you'd like to be able to interact with us more directly to ask questions, which we'll have an easier time looking at, I do recommend going to Zoom. You can find us at zoom.us slash join. The meeting ID is 812-506-718. Now, the topic that we're going to be discussing today is one that we had originally scheduled to discuss earlier this week. Who's the censor, Twitter or Trump? And we, of course, rescheduled this discussion to today. We don't usually do New Ideal Live broadcasts on Friday. We discussed it because of the events of the past week. Uh, related to the uh, police brutality and the riots that we've been dealing with. I want to tell you that that is a topic that we are going to continue to cover, and I'll just give you a a preview of what we have in store for you next week. Uh, Next week, actually on Monday, Ankar Gatte is going to present on the question, is there a right to mass protest? That's, I think, clearly a relevant question to be asking in our day. And uh, then in relation to some of the rhetoric that's been coming out of the White House about the uh, protest, you all saw pictures of Trump walking across the street, holding up a Bible at a church. Uh, We'll be discussing the question, can the real meaning of a religion be hijacked? That will be a discussion between me and Elon Giorno of the Ayn Rand Institute. So uh, today, however, to talk about the censorship topic, who's the censor, Twitter or Trump, Uh, I'd like to bring on Dr. Greg Salmieri. Uh, Greg is a senior scholar of philosophy in the Salem Center at the University of Texas, Austin, and also a frequent contributor here to New Ideal Live. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ben. So, Greg, I thought we should start by talking about why, of all the things happening in the world, uh, this is still a topic worth discussing the topic of censorship and free speech and what each of them really means and who is the real censor. Uh, Did you want to start out by saying anything on that? Well, so if you think about the topics that we're, we're, uh, UIDL has coming up, one of them is, is Ankar talking about whether there's a right to mass protest or not. Um, that you'd even ask the question suggests the possibility that there isn't. And I don't think there is in the way that it's, it's taking place. Uh, but if not, how does one affect social change? How does one address injustices that there are in society? And even if there is a right to mass protest, it seems not to be that good a way to do it. 
Um, there were plenty of mass protests in 2014, 2015, uh, after um, Freddie Gray and before that Eric Garner and Michael Brown. Um, not much changed. Some things actually did, and we could talk about that, but it, it, there wasn't the kind of change people are looking for, um, whether for good or ill. Uh, and in general, um, you know, people have been worried about uh, police brutality, claims of racism for decades and decades. Uh, these protests haven't seemed to have done much. And what I think they've done, actually, both in the 2015 period and now, is uh, stopped movements that were already starting to address uh, questions of policing and how to police better. They've diverted attention to this issue of rioting. But then how do you communicate and, and work for change? Um, whether protests are a part of it or whether they're not, or whether they're not, it can't be all of it. Uh, well, the main way is by speaking out, by sharing ideas, and we've seen lots of people doing that. Here we are on New Ideal, sharing our ideas. Um, President Trump is well; he would be in a platform to communicate anyway, but he's tweeting his views on various things. Barack Obama had a Medium article. Uh, Joe Biden went to a church, and the church thing was put up on Facebook Live, where he gave a, a speech and so forth. So these are the politicians, but plenty of other people who aren't in office who want to. Uh, suggest, recommend policies. That's what we're doing, what the various writers we like are doing. Some of them are in publications, but a lot of them are on social media. And even the ones who have, um, you know, platforms, they write for a certain magazine, uh, those things mostly get shared now and discovered by people through social media. And social media empowers each of us to spread these ideas uh, out. So it's a real mechanism for uh, potentially for social change. And so whatever issues you might be concerned about, whether it's police violence, whether it's rioting, whether it's, um, I mean, I'll just those to the coronavirus or the measures being taken to stop the coronavirus or to hem it in, whatever the issue is, um, speech is the way to get your views known about it, to persuade people about them and to try to um, fight for change, for reforms. And the internet has been the a real boon to speech. It's the medium by which we all speak now, in any case. And so uh, threats to free speech on the internet, claims that free speech is being threatened on the internet, questions about what constitute free speech or censorship on the internet should really be important to us, whatever other issues we care about, precisely because we care about those issues. And this is the means by which we can address them. Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting to contrast mass protest from free speech in the way that I think you were just suggesting. And I think that is something that that Ankar is going to say a lot more about next week, Monday. So if, if anyone found that uh, opposition interesting and provoking, I definitely recommend tuning in Monday. But uh, one thing I would add, Greg, is that there's an old uh, advertising copy that used to run in the 60s for Ayn Rand's books. And the the headline of it was, Ayn Rand knows that real revolutions happen in men's minds, not in the streets. And I think that's that speaks to the same issue and, and hopefully is something that we can continue to explore here both today and next week. So I, I wanted to start out uh, on the immediate issue of giving a little bit of factual background of, of the about the controversy that we're about to discuss, the controversy about uh, who's the censor Twitter or Trump. In some ways, this has been percolating through the, through the Trump administration for many years, but it came to a, a fore really on May 26th, 
when uh, Trump tweeted about how he thought plans to use mail-in ballots in various states were part of what he called a rigged uh, election uh, and suggested that there was a kind of conspiracy perhaps to suppress uh, votes. When, when he did this, for the very first time, Twitter responded by putting up its very first fact-checked uh, fact check notice against the president. I think it was the first fact check notice against any politician. Subsequently, many other politicians have started to be fact checked in this way. Uh, but Twitter's uh, flagging basically argued that the claim the president was making about the mail-in ballots was unsubstantiated. Now, interestingly, Twitter did this. Not every social platform did. Notably, Facebook didn't do this. They Zuckerberg came out talking about why he didn't do it. And now Zuckerberg's been criticized basically by the Democrats for being uh, pro-Trumpy and siding with uh, Trump's views on these kinds of things. That's something that we should talk about later, I think, uh, whether that's a fair way. Yeah, although as context for that, it's worth noting that Twitter was, uh, sorry, Facebook was a lot earlier than Twitter on putting fact checks and things like this on um, posts more generally. So Facebook, yes. which has been more aggressive about fact checking, um, held back from fact checking this. Um, and it's interesting to think about why in Twitter, which has been less aggressive about it, was more aggressive in this case. So then subsequently, May 27th, once Trump realized that Twitter had fact checked him like this in, a, in an unprecedented way, he tweeted again, alleging that social media platforms, quote unquote, totally silence conservative voices. That's the way he put it. And then he said, quote, we will strongly regulate and close them down before we can ever allow this to happen, unquote, which is a pretty uh, drastic statement. He then followed that statement up on May 28th with an executive order that mandated a review of social media companies' status under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, accusing them of engaging in a kind of censorship, and Trump's fans really cheered this on. We're going to talk a little bit more about what Section 230 is, uh, what it means, what it has to do with free speech, uh, and there have been uh, discussions about whether or not his executive order had any real teeth to it, but there's something he clearly wants to do with it. Interestingly, this didn't stop Twitter from proceeding to continue to fact check and flag Trump's subsequent tweets in a number of ways. Uh, most notably since then, uh, there was the tweet where, the, where Trump spoke about how when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And I think Twitter actually flagged that with a kind of uh, violence warning of a, of a sort. So Greg, I know you wanted to start off with just a little indication of what Section 230 is and why it's significant that Trump yeah. is trying to invoke and it at this point. Generally, the claim also, even prior to that, that um, it made in Trump's tweet that some of the social media companies are silencing conservatives. We can talk about what censorship is and uh, so forth later, but this claim that the social media is silencing conservatives um, is so out of touch with reality, it's bizarre. I mean, now, it, it might be true that um, they're discriminating against them or not treating them fairly, but um, does anyone think Trump would have got elected without Twitter? I mean, this is a, a person who has a, a major level national voice. Um, a lot of it gained through Twitter. His Twitter following is what all the other politicians cower in fear of, right? You don't want Trump to say a bad name about you on Twitter. Trump values it. And when, when a lot of his allies 
say we wish you'd stop tweeting because he, you know, maybe got into some controversies. He says, I can't. This is a megaphone where I could reach the American people. It's so valuable. The idea that this has silenced or shut down conservatives or conservatives somehow don't have a way to reach people because social media has been unfair to them uh, is crazy. And if you think about um, how many streams there were through which you could get right wing as opposed to left wing information in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, um, if you just think about concretely, like what sources, what channels, uh, it's pretty clear there's a lot more right of center information, opinion, et cetera, that you have access to now than ever at any time in the past. And that it's primarily through YouTube and Twitter. So even if they're not treating uh, the right wing fairly, the idea that somehow they've shut it down, they're this uh, major impediment, uh, is just out of touch with reality. Yeah, now, I've sec- seen, and I've seen evidence where I think it's good evidence that there are certain biases there, but mm-hmm. the idea that these biases lead to some kind of disproportionate uh, featuring of uh, left-wing content over right-wing content, or that there's a disproportionate number of right-wing sites that are being shut down or shadow banned or something, I, I just have never found evidence for that, and any study I've seen has suggested that there isn't a disproportionate treatment. But even you- supposing that it is happened and there is some a disproportionate thing. Shutting down, silencing is a much stronger claim, right? So if YouTube favors leftists 10% over rightists or something, that might be a cause for concern, but it's not the same thing as they shut down. Well, that's something that we need to still uh, discuss, and that's a a big part of what we want to talk about today. And how does Um, Section 230 play into that? So this, I mean, we could say a bit about what it is, but I don't think it's appropriate to say it in a neutral term. The whole business about Section 230 is a lie, um, that it somehow gives uh, social media companies special permission if only they remain neutral arbiters. There's nothing about neutrality in it. What it does is it correctly identifies the fact that a social media company, or not even say social media, an internet platform is not a publisher. And it does this for the purposes of liability law. So if you're a publisher, somebody who vets an article decides to put it out with your imprimatur on it, like your Oxford University Press or Penguin Press or whatever, and then the article has slanderous or libelous material in it, you can be sued. The author can be sued and you, the publisher, can be sued. But not everybody who handles the book, a truck that the book is driven on, a bookstore that sells the book, even if it um, doesn't sell every book in the world, a, a guy who reviews the book, not everyone who has any dealing with or in any way promotes the book at all is liable, just the publisher is a very special, very narrow, qualified thing. Now, the point that's made is that internet platforms, by which I think when this was originally started meant um, like the ISPs, internet service providers and so forth, uh, are not publishers. People go there, they put up whatever content they want. The ISP or now the social media platform doesn't check, go through each one and pick which ones uh, to publish. And they publish millions and millions, billions even, of things per day, I think even millions per second, um, they're not vetting and deciding on these things. It's the author that's speaking, not the social media company. The social media companies just providing a platform to speak. And so they can't in justice be held liable for false speech on the platform. Now, this, I should say, has nothing to do with neutrality. So if somebody comes up with a, we hate ARI page, about how evil and awful ARI is. And they say, we won't let you post anything complimentary about ARI on this page. This is just for people who hate ARI. 
um, and think ARI is awful and distorting the legacy of America and I mean, that's all we'll post on there. Um, and then, but they don't, all they do is occasionally once a month, they check if anything's pro ARI and take it down. If somebody comes up there and posts, you know, Ben Bayer committed murder last night or something, and then Ben sues them for libel, the person who's libel is the guy who posted it, not this page. Um, if the page curates it and takes special action to promote it, then they're a publisher of it. But the fact that they're not neutral, they're only a forum for stuff that's bad about Ben and all, all of us here, doesn't mean that they therefore are the speakers of anything that happens to get said on their page. And of course, Facebook and YouTube and uh, uh, Twitter are not anything like a one viewpoint type of a forum even. They are basically neutral forums that have some content arbitration. And so it's as, as clear as day that this section applies to them in its original intent and that nothing that they're even accused of doing by the people who most have conspiracy theories about them would go against the section of the law. It's just a lie. And it's the kind of lie told by spe free speech haters who want to end free speech on the Internet, people like Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. And later, right, I think... And there are other ones on the left who want to end it, but 230 is the right-wing uh, whipping boy. Later, I think we should take a look maybe at the actual text uh, of that section and just to just to make clear to everybody what it actually does say. But, but before we do that, I think it's I think it's important to make the following point. You know, so, Greg, you, you said that if uh, what you don't normally do if someone makes a libel statement is sue the bookstore that where the book appears, uh, the bookstore that's selling the book in which the libel statement appears. You might sue the publisher, you might sue uh, the, the author, obviously, but not the bookstore. And why is that? Well, it's because the bookstore is, can't be held responsible. They're, they're, they, they buy a whole lot of books, right? And they make no promises as to the veracity of the claims in the books that they're selling. How could they? They're selling a whole variety of books that say different things, maybe even contradictory things. They, nobody could expect them to think that what they're saying is everything in this book is true. Uh, and so what that means in practice then is that if you allow the bookstore to be sued, uh, for something they can't reasonably held accountable for. What you're doing is you're allowing government to punish them for wrongs they did not inflict, which means allowing force to be used against them, which means using it against an innocent party. Uh, and that, that's going to play into our understanding of why that's, a kind, that's the kind of censorship. It's not the other way around. It's not that the bookstore is censoring somebody when they decide not to purchase a book. It's using force against the bookstore. And I would argue that it's, it's much worse to hold something like a digital platform accountable because a digital platform like Twitter or Facebook, uh, let alone the ISPs, have uncountably more users than, say, the bookstores have books uh, and, or newspapers, right? There's no possible way they could, they could vet everything uh, can, or can be thought of as a publisher. And so if you then decided to hold them liable, whether the bookstores or the digital platforms, you have to understand the immediate consequences of that would be drastic. They would, it would mean that they would, these platforms would immediately be incentivized not to publish or allow anyone to publish anything remotely controversial. 
And that would mean they would, they would take away Trump's Twitter account. They would take away anyone's Twitter account who wanted to say anything halfway controversial. That would be taking someone's tool of communication away. Uh, that would be the threat of force, but it was a threat coming from the person who's now unleashed all these liabilities, uh, all, the, all this liability on them. That would be a violation of their free speech rights, not one that they were initiating, but one that they were uh, responding to on behalf of the person who unleashed basically the mob uh, of lawsuits on them. Um, so, Greg, all of this conversation we've been having at a, at a concrete level, I think, presupposes a wider discussion about what the nature of censorship actually is, what the nature of free speech actually is. Uh, did you want to, did you want to say anything about that before I, I said more? No, why don't you take us into that issue? Okay. So here I think it's, it bears emphasis that only government force can censor. That censorship isn't just the same as not giving somebody a platform. What it means is punishing someone's speech, punishing their speech with physical force, like the kind that I just mentioned. Uh, and that means uh, a negative. It means taking something away from someone. It means stopping someone from being able to give a speech to a willing audience, stopping them from being able to publish a book to paying customers, uh, etc. cetera. And it, the way that it stops people is by a negative. It, it stops them by making threats of fines, putting them in jail if they don't pay the fines, or just taking directly destroying uh, the, the, the printing presses, the computers, whatever it is, the tool of communication that they use. So government's proper role is not to, is not to censor, it's not to use force, it's to protect people from force. And that means protecting speech from force. By contrast, Private companies as such, and Twitter and Facebook and all these digital platforms are private companies. And if somebody wants to ask a question about what to think about government-funded internet research, good question to ask. But they're private companies. And as such, they don't have any power whatsoever to wield force. They just have the power to produce and offer economic value, which means offering a positive, which you have the choice to take or not to take. And that's even when the, what they're producing and offering you the value of is a digital communications platform. It's a platform you didn't have before. It's a platform you, didn't, you couldn't have built it yourself. Uh, and that's true, if, that's true even when they put conditions on how you can use the platform. Those conditions are not censorship, they're terms of service. They're the terms and conditions under which they are letting you use their property, which, by the way, they're often letting you do for free. And that's even when they decide they want to put certain disclaimers on the way that you use that property, the way that you use to communicate it. If they want to say, we don't necessarily agree with this guy's saying, but we're letting him say it, that's not censorship. That's, again, their management of their own property. And that's even if they do it in a non-neutral way. And this is something that you were hinting at before, I think. Uh, if, if they're biased in the way they flag things and biased in the way they make disclaimers, uh, they have the right to be biased. They have the right to let people use their platform as they choose. And as I think you emphasized with you know, your example of the anti-ARI website, Greg, 
this is something that people do all the time, use their platform in a one-sided or biased way, but that's part of what the right to free speech includes. And you can you know, make arguments about how maybe you think they should use their platform in a different way and it would be a more valuable platform if they didn't have this bias, but it's still their right to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah, I just, um, one kind of nuance and one uh, additional point to that. And we sometimes say only the government can violate free speech. I don't think that's strictly true. Well, I said only, only the government censor. could be a censor. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like if Al-Qaeda says, we'll shoot you if you right. grow the prophet Muhammad, um, yeah, that's a violation of your free speech. And the govern and you could maybe say Al-Qaeda is censoring you, although really you're censoring yourself in deference to out of fear of Al-Qaeda. But um it's then the government's job to round up Al-Qaeda, to stop them from doing that, right? And to stop them from threatening you. Um, that's what it is to protect free speech. The other point is, though, that this idea that um, it's a violation of free speech not to give someone a platform or to give someone a platform only conditionally is not new. It's not new to Trump and Ted Cruz saying this. It's not new to people saying it about the internet. And as we'll see, and we haven't talked about it yet, the Democrats are doing this with the internet just as much as the Republicans and are just as much uh, real attackers of the social media platforms. But um, it's not just new with the internet. It's been going on um, at least since the 20s and 30s. Um, there was the argument in, in Hollywood for a long time that um, said, incidentally, by communists who were supporters of the totally anti-free speech USSR, right, uh, that um, Hollywood film studios were censoring them when they wouldn't let them put their propaganda into movies if film owners, you know, if uh, owners of studios didn't want to hire propagandizing writers. That was, oh, we're limiting their free speech. Don't I have free speech to say how we should have a dictatorship and no one should have free speech, right? So that was a big argument back in the in the um, earlier part of the 20th century, and Ayn Rand wrote a lot about that at the time. Then in the 1960s, um, this issue arose again with um, television, and um, some people were worried that the television companies were censoring people, um, quote, uh, by not um, airing certain views on television or not giving them enough time, that the newspapers were censoring people by having slanted editorial pages. And um, um, there were arguments to, uh, to uh, try to take more government control over these media, even than there already was in the case of television, and control more over the press, particularly coming out of the Kennedy administration, and Rand really invade against that, uh, and invade against the idea that we might use antitrust law to do it in the case of uh, publishing, which is one of the things that's now being argued again, for example, by free speech hater Elizabeth Warren, uh, in the case of the uh, of the multimedia companies, uh, um, in the case of Amazon in particular, and so forth. So um, this this idea of um, not helping me say whatever I want at whatever moment I want to amounts to violating my free speech, and therefore you, Hollywood producer, television station, newspaper writer, ought to be forced by the government to do what a majority of us voting. Uh, thinks is fair with respect to giving people a platform. Um, that position, which is the total obliteration of the concept of free speech, is common as dirt. It's what every free speech hater has always argued, and it's what the current free speech hater in the White House is arguing now, as well as what Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and all the free speech haters on the left are arguing now. Yeah, and it, it, to the point that it's the same anti-free speech view 
that you see on the left and have seen on the left for many decades, uh, I, I thought the following exercise might be interesting. I have two quotations. Uh, the listeners should pay attention to each one. And I'm going to give you a quiz to start with. Which of these is a quotation from Trump's executive order? And which of these is a quotation from a socialist magazine? Listen. First quotation. In a country that has long cherished the freedom of expression, we cannot allow a limited number of online platforms to handpick the speech that Americans may access and convey on the internet. This practice is fundamentally anti-democratic. When large, powerful social media companies censor opinions with which they disagree, they exercise a dangerous power. That's quote one. Now here's quote two. As a society, we've come to rely on platforms like Twitter and Facebook as places to share and receive information, news, and ideas. Yet we have little control over these spaces. Our public conversations occur in digital spaces that are controlled by a handful of rich tech billionaires and software engineers. But the rules governing public speech in the digital age should be decided democratically. Neither tech bosses nor an unbalanced president should have free reign to determine what these norms, values, and standards are. Now, maybe the last part was a bit of a giveaway as to uh, who the author was. But the first one was from the president's executive order. The second one was an article by Nicole Askoff in Jacobin magazine, which is the leading socialist publication. I mean, the idea is in the preface of that executive order, the, the first quote that I read from, were indistingu are, they're indistinguishable from what the, the socialist anti-free speech people are now saying. And the conservative types who take themselves to be anti-communist, anti socialists should really think seriously about what they're getting behind when they endorse the, uh, the views of the president on this topic, because I, I, they're not fundamentally different from the anti-free speech views of, of the left here. I don't want to uh, treat it as it's only the president and his supporters and some super far left socialist uh, organization that are the problems here because people on the left too often people in criticizing the left too often run together um hillary clinton and marxists right and there's a big difference between their views though they're both bad and so you might think that we're straw manning the contemporary democratic party by saying uh well they have the same kind of view as the jacobin magazine which is a really far left magazine but nancy pelosi was fighting interestingly against trump's administration right, to try to get language very much like Section 230 removed from the uh, Canada-Mexico-America trade bill that got passed during impeachment. That was one of the kind of holdups in there that, interestingly, the Republicans um, wanted that language in the bill and Pelosi didn't. Um, the Trump administration, incidentally, has been really um, schizophrenic on this issue of free speech in the internet. I think the people in charge of Trump's FCC have been fairly good on it. And they're the ones who um, uh, changed, got rid of the net neutrality restrictions, which is actually, I think, probably the single best thing the Trump administration has done. It's not anything any of the people who are big fans of Trump uh, praise him for, and it kind of gets, uh, gets uh, you know, forgotten. But I, that, I think that was an important pro-freedom uh, move on this administration. So presumably that element of his administration was responsible for getting that language into the trade bill, but it was Pelosi that was fighting against it because maybe it was seen as um, fostering the tech billionaires. And then you have uh, Clinton talking about how Zuckerberg is trying to reelect Trump by not putting warning messages on Facebook 
uh, over Trump's tweets, where Zuckerberg saying, I don't want to be uh, the arbiter of this. Now, I think Zuckerberg and, and the people at Twitter themselves too much think of themselves as though they have the power to censor. Um, and think of it as making a political decision, which it's not. It's a product decision. These people have created a product, have created an online community. This is what they're devoting their lives to. And they have to think about what kind of product and what kind of community do they want to build, do they think will be good for their customers and investors uh, that will fit both, uh, the, the, that will fit their company's mission and will make them money. And then users have to decide which, uh, which to use. But I actually think... Um, Facebook's policy on this issue makes a lot of sense. Um, there are reasons to fact check the other things Trump said and not this voter fraud claim. If, if this voter fraud tweet were in a newspaper, it would be in the opinion section, not the news section. And typically the things that I've seen Facebook fact check are assertions of concrete fact, as opposed to projections about what will happen in a different situation. So I think Facebook's policy on it has made a lot of sense, actually. I think there's still a lot of problems with the way Facebook manages that, though admittedly they have a pretty difficult task in figuring out how to track everything that everybody in the world is saying. But uh, I mean, yeah, I think I tend to agree with you that it, what they're doing is a better approach. And I would also add that... possibly hard to do this. I mean, no one's worked out a good way to manage all this content and to even keep like terrorist recruitment and pedophilic stuff yeah. off it, right? It's really, really hard. And I would add that... that to your point that what they're creating is a product that has to be bared in mind. That has to be kept in mind because it's a product that has to be paid for by somebody. Now they give it to us for free. Let me pause. They give it to us for free. Okay. But it has to be paid for. How do they pay for it? They pay for it with advertising revenue and advertisers have standards of their own and you can, maybe argue with the standards that advertisers have, but it's a fact that many advertisers don't want to court political controversy of any kind because they want to be able to sell their products to people on both sides of the aisle. So when, especially when uh, conservative types who think of themselves as, as pro-business in some sense uh, and who are apt to say there's no such thing as a free lunch, expect to be given a free lunch by Twitter or Facebook without any discernible means by which Facebook or Twitter is going to pay for this, you have to think about how serious they are about uh, being opposed to the idea of a free lunch because that's how they pay for it. And they have to pay attention to what their advertisers have said. And there have been campaigns. Uh, there have been boycott campaigns against various advertisers who end up being you know, placed in certain kinds of controversial videos. And those advertisers have complained to the platforms because of it. And that's not all, but I think part of the reason why certain of these platforms, you know, want to demonetize certain kinds of controversial political videos and so forth. And they still let you put the videos on, but they're not going to run advertising. And that's not censorship. It's figuring out how to pay for what they're providing. Yeah. And it's not necessarily irrational on the advertisers part either. You might even agree with a position, but you think, you know, uh, I don't want, you know, uh, my soft drink to be, um, advertised uh, in this, you know, context of this particular political controversy. It's not the, you know, we're working very hard to associate it with these emotions and uh, not those. So I thought maybe we should say a little bit more about Section 230 now. We're uh, getting to the point where we should start to take more questions from the audience. And so I'll just 
tell people, especially who are on Zoom, if you want to ask us a question, best place to do that is through the Q&A module. Hover over the screen, hit the Q&A button, uh, plug your questions in there, and we will see those before we see anything else. But um, Greg, so what this executive order of the president did was to review social media platforms for, for basically how well they were conforming to the spirit of this Section 230 of the Communications uh, Decency Act. And in the executive order, the president alleged the platform that's not in compliance with the spirit of that law should, uh, it's not when it removes or restricts access to content. And the question is whether that's really what the act is saying. And I wanna put up on the screen the actual text of the section of the act that is cited in this executive order. Now, they don't cite the whole thing. They, they cite it very selectively. And so let's, let's actually look and see what it says. Let me read it for you. And then let's say, look at what it does say and what it doesn't say. This is section C, protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. One, treatment of publisher or speaker. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Two, civil liability. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. So it's worth thinking a little bit about what this is actually saying and doing. First, it, as you indicated earlier, Greg, when you said there's nothing in this entire act about neutrality, that's for sure. This section that I just read doesn't say they get, prote they get uh, protection from liability only if they don't make restrictions. It doesn't give them permission under certain conditions. On the contrary, what it does is it, it says what the government should not do. It says government shall not uh, hold people liable for the speech of their users, even if, they even if they restrict access to otherwise objectionable content. So it's a way of doubling down on what government shouldn't do. It is not saying we're only gonna hold you, uh, uh, we're only gonna protect you from liability, we're not going to hold you liable if you comply with certain kinds of conditions. Yeah, but I'm a little bit, I find it a little, I mean, the, the claim that we need to look at this sort of super carefully to see this, mm -hmm. I don't buy. It's very clear what the thing states. There's no reason and no excuse to imagine it states anything else. And the difference between the people who interpret it in the two different ways is that some of them are lying. And they know they're lying. Ted Cruz is lying about this. And so is Donald Trump. I mean, I think that the best argument, and we'll put best in quotation marks there, that I've seen that this Section 230 does anything at all to defend what the president is doing is because there's language earlier in the preface, which is cited also in this executive order, saying the reason that we're doing this is to encourage the free exchange of ideas on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so that's then interpreted to say, well, if the platform is favoring one idea rather than another, then it's not favoring that free exchange and therefore it's in violation of the spirit. But uh, two things. I mean, one, the reason that the act does that is because it, it protects people from liability, uh, from you know, lawsuits. It protects platforms from lawsuits, therefore incentivizing them to in allow as many people, as many voices to be on the platform as possible. That's the way that it implements that spirit. But second, if you actually ask the author <laughs> of, this, of this section, he'll tell you this is, it's being, that that clause is being invoked in a way that is never what he meant. That it's, it's the first thing uh, that, uh, I think that's Evan Bai, Senator Evan Bai, who uh, was the author of that. But again, I don't think this is a subtle or nuanced thing. You can look and see what it says. There are, there are sometimes detailed and nuanced issues of interpretation or something where people agree. And then there are cases where people lie about things. And this is the latter kind of case. And you can tell that for yourself if you listen to what's said about the section and you read the section. Uh, so don't take my word for it. Yeah, you can, you can Google Section 230. Uh, there's a number but of different places. Lots of politicians lie about lots of things, and you can tell when they're doing it if you look at the thing they're talking about and see if it's anything like what they claim it is. And this is an easy one. I mean, I find it especially shocking when someone like Ted Cruz makes arguments about this because he's someone who's both a lawyer and who claims to be a, a constitutional scholar of some kind and can't seem to make an argument from the plain text of the law uh, that that it's in any way applicable to what he's trying to advocate for. So Greg, I think we should start to look at question. some questions that are coming in now. We've got a bunch of them. Uh, and again, the best place to plug these in is through the Q&A box. So let's um, start with Andrew Midor. I'm not for restricting free speech, he says, but when they start issuing fact checks, is that not more than the original uh, post and adding their own content at that point? Doesn't that open the door to liability for their own comments? Absolutely, for their own comments. So if they um, uh, um, put up a fact check on Trump and the fact check of Trump said, you know, uh, Trump murdered 10 people and then snorted lines of cocaine off their dead bodies or something, and that's libelous, then they can get sued for libel for that quote, but not for the original story that they, uh, that they fact checked or failed to fact check. And that would apply to Andrew's other question about if bookstores put up signs saying that authors are wrong about something. That if, yeah, if they did that, they would, you could sue them for saying that specific thing. If the, um, and only if the thing was libelous. Right. So if, if, if um, Barnes and Noble puts up over uh, Atlas Shrugged where they sell it a sign saying this is the worst novel ever and all the philosophy in it is false, you know, maybe don't stop at Barnes and Noble if you disagree with that as I do, but you couldn't sue them for that. Now, if they put up a sign saying, um, uh, Ayn Rand was a child molester or something, then you could sue them over that. And you say it should sue them, and I would think would win. Um, the, the, Andrew again says, what if the company says something as a company? Should they then be uh, uh, susceptible to liability suits? Yes, and they are right now. So, and no one thinks they shouldn't be that I've ever heard. So again, these, these are kind of... Um, Non-questions. Um, Mason asks, why does the claim that social media companies are destroying democracy remain popular? Is it just partisanship or something else? I don't think it's partisanship because it's one of the very few nonpartisan issues today. The Republicans think it and the Democrats think it. They just think it about slightly different, you know, on different days of the week. Um, 
Ben, do you have thoughts as to what it is, if not just partisanship? Uh, well, it's it's partisanship in, I would say, in only the following sense, which is that each of these parties has an interest in trying to control these companies. They know that these are enormously valuable platforms. And if they can use the force of government to bend those platforms to their will for their party, uh, the other side will do it for their party, then they'll do it. And they are doing it and they shouldn't. And so it's it's partisan, but it's both parties that are trying to engage in this partisan rhetoric. And that's, I mean, that's part of the reason why you see them making the same arguments about destroying democracy on, you know, both Trump's executive order and the socialist platform uh, in, in the socialist uh, yeah, so magazine. Yes, it's sort of like is blaming the ref partisanship. Uh, um, well, um, if both teams do it, no, but yet they're each doing it out of partisanship. Yeah. Um, but the other side of it is, there's a long-standing prejudice against big companies, and these are big companies, and people are afraid of and mistrust big companies with power. Uh, the Democrats, the left, the socialist side of politics, all, all of those three things, that is the Democrats and the more socialist elements on the left, uh, have always explicitly hated, uh, or anyway, for many decades, explicitly hated big business. Uh, there was a time when some Republicans were in favor of business, but there are very few of them left, and uh, certainly none that are in favor of big business, maybe you know, some mom and top, pop shop they like. So um, these are easy, popular people to go after. Uh, you know, they have billions of dollars, they're, um, uh, they're young and seem self-confident and so forth. Um, they're kind of cocky, and these are just the kind of people that envious people hate, that envious people envy. So it's no surprise that um, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Jack Dorsey is the Twitter CEO, I think, um, is his name, uh, that these people are in the crosshairs of um, bad people. And it's also probably worth thinking a little bit about what makes it so easy to think that you have something like a right to your Twitter account or a right to your Facebook account to do whatever you want with without anybody commenting in a negative way on it. I mean, it, none of us could have created these on our own with very few exceptions in our audience, I'm sure. Uh, nobody, we don't have the right to claim that somebody created it for us. I wonder sometimes, is it the fact that they've given it to us for free does, and that we've come to rely on it so much, this free thing that we don't even have to pay for, does that make it feel like it's ours and that we didn't have to do anything to get it? Uh, I don't think it's that it's free because this has been that we've seen this with other services that seem to people to be essential in the past. But it's the fact that we are so rely on it. When a product becomes essential, when you rely on it, when you can't imagine your life without it, when you make so many of your decisions, taking it for granted that it'll be there because you know it will be there, then it's easy to take for granted the people that provide it for you and uh, treat them as, um, as uh, owing it to you. And you know, I talk about these people are targets for bad people, for envious people, and I think that's true. But we also have a whole ideology and a whole way of thinking about business and government and um, and products and what we're owed and entitlement mentality that is all in the cultural era around us. 
such that you don't even have to be someone who's animated by the kind of uh, hateness of business and production and achievement that that some people are to just um, have it never occur to you that this thing had to be made by somebody for his own purposes uh, or by a company for its own purposes um, and that it's not owed to you. Let's, so we're getting some comments I see on Facebook, uh, someone saying that we're thinking of these Silicon Valley companies as business heroes when in fact this person's alleging that they're Bertram Scudders or Orrin Boyles. And I take it the implication there is that uh, they've gained their business power through some kind of political favors or some kind of corruption. Uh, and that presumably this then is the, is the rationalization or the justification for why they shouldn't have uh, freedom to use their property as uh, they see fit. And that's make-believe. I mean, what, what uh, special power did Mark Zuckerberg, a college dropout, and a couple of his friends uh, and some, a couple of investors have? What special power did Jack uh, Dorsey on Twitter have? What special power did, did um, Bryn and Page uh, at Stanford have? They, you could have done it if you were good enough, but you weren't, so you didn't, and neither was I. Good enough at the relevant things and virtuous enough in the relevant ways, right? They didn't have, they didn't get some special mandate. It's not, and it's not a difficult or close case of this. It's not like something like the AT&T Bell Monopoly where it was all in a complicated way entwined with the government and, uh, and so forth. Uh, it's not like the initial backbone of the internet which had um, you know, government research go into it. These are companies that um, developed you know, in my lifetime, right? In my time of using the internet. There was Alta Vista and Yahoo and Google and Google was better and it was made out of somebody's, uh, uh, you know, a dorm room or whatever. And everyone tried it and said, boy, this one's a lot better. I'm going to use this one. And YouTube the same way. Google eventually bought it. Right. Uh, and Twitter and Facebook, we all, at least those of us, you know, over 30, uh, in my case, over 40, could remember when these companies came up, they weren't... Uh, some unveiling of some complex, hugely funded by the you know government uh, or favorite industry. They were a couple of guys who came up with uh, some good ideas, and won our custom. Yeah, I, I actually wrote an article which I'll give uh, more information about later called "Facebook Censor or Victim," where I basically go through the same argument about them as opposed to about Twitter. Uh, and if you look at the history of the company, I mean, there was a time, for instance, when, uh, when Google decided that they were going to open up uh, their own social media platform. Um, I can't even remember, remember the name of it right Google now. Google Plus. <laughs> Google Plus, right. Uh, and, and Zuckerberg went to the mattresses, basically. He called everybody in and said, we're working overtime until we figure out how to outcompete Google Plus. They didn't go to the government and ask for antitrust legislation to shut down uh, Google for being an unfair competitor, even though Google was a massively larger company than theirs. And even though other internet companies had done things like that, if you remember Netscape versus Microsoft back during the 90s with the browser wars, Facebook didn't do that. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, the best argument that you could possibly make here is, well, yeah, what you mentioned before, there was government research that, that funded the, the initial you know, protocol technology behind the internet. But if you want to go back that far and say any industry that's been seeded in a, in, in a minuscule way like that by some kind of government money, none of us have any property. 
none of us have any right to use our property because we all drive on roads and you know we use the uh, the, the utilities for our electricity uh, in any case where it, there is a intrusion or an element of uh, government funding or coercion the uh, the solution is not now let's make everything else uh, enslaved by the government by censoring people's prop uh, the way people use their property the solution is get rid of that funding and of course it it hardly exists anymore with the internet it's it's the, if anything the internet's become more privatized over the course of its development uh and the government has controlled less and less of it so I, I think it's a complete slander against uh, the the tech companies that they're some kind of cronies. I mean, you can take issue with their politics on various subjects, and and you can take issue with the way they run their platforms and think that they're biased. And I think that they are in certain ways, but that doesn't mean that they uh, are there's some kind of conspiracy uh, to be use them as uh, proxy agents for government censors. And there's simply no evidence for that that's ever been presented. So this brings us maybe to uh, Richard's uh, question, which maybe should be the last one we take uh, yeah. for considerations of time. He asks, can we comment on the contrasting competencies of these people? Uh, I assume he means the, the tech CEOs and other higher ups, tech executives, let's call them. Uh, the contrasting uh, competencies of these tech executives, uh, technology versus philosophy. So I would say what they're tremendously competent at is much wider than technology, right? It's technology, entrepreneurship, marketing, yeah. figuring out new business models to make these things pay. Uh, Cause it's not, maybe you can write a better algorithm than one that Twitter has. Okay, but Twitter figured out that like short texts was the kind of thing that people would be interested in and, and how to make, you know, connect people around that. So the, the competency is wider than technology. Um, and there's a tremendous amount that's been accomplished by these companies. Um, but versus philosophy. Um, yeah, I think for the most part, um, the people running these companies are relatively conventional philosophically. They're, I don't think they're conventional relative to the man on the street. They probably have more interesting, more diverse, um, are more open to radical views than um, a random person picked out uh, of America. But they're nonetheless generally um, views that are typical of well-educated, uh, intelligent people of their class in terms of their broad philosophical views and their broad political views, which means that they tend to be um, basically pragmatist center leftists. Um, and I don't think that's good, but you can't um, expect everyone to solve every problem. And Especially not when the alternative that they are offered is no better. Yeah, and it's uh, those of us who think that we know the philosophical truth better than they do and whose politics are more right than these people do, uh, it's up to us to learn how to convince them and to convince the next generation of people who are going to um, you know, create companies like this uh, or to figure out how to do some of what they're doing ourselves. And you don't so, convince them by taking their companies away from them, which, which is what you know, it's an interesting, instructive example to look at what happened to Bill Gates after that's what happened to him. Yeah, and it's really sad how many of these people themselves are in favor of just that kind of thing. I mean, the the um, the destruction of Microsoft, uh, which you know, I think a lot of people here won't even remember um, what Microsoft was and what was done to it. But the destruction of Microsoft and of Gates is not viewed as a horror in the tech industry. 
um, people who are still celebrated in the industry uh, and who complain about the fact that there's not enough building in the world and wonder why, like uh, Andreessen, were people who were clamoring um, for uh, the bringing down of Microsoft at the time. And just, just today or yesterday, you have Elon Musk, who's a kind of major tech entrepreneur, not particularly in the social media space, but spouting out on Twitter about how Amazon should be broken up over some minor thing with whether some guy's book got published there. Uh, which on then time, did get published. Which but. it then did, and he didn't know what he was talking about. So it's, it's sad that um, so few people in the country, including so few of the best people, take really seriously the issue of um, rights and freedom and um, understand um, that it's individual rights that um, are the political implementation of respect for the mind and the need to produce that makes all of these things possible. Our politicians don't understand that and don't care for it, and neither do uh, most of the most productive people. And that is a tragedy. And it's the tragedy that Atlas Shrugged is about and about how to solve it. Excellent words for us to go out on, Greg. So uh, thanks again for joining us on this. Uh, I know you're about to uh, uh, assume a new position at the University of Texas. And so we wish you the best of luck as you, as you head out that way. Thanks. So, Technically, I've assumed the position already, but I have to move house, as the British would say. So I'll be on my way to Texas. This and week. I hope we'll have you on the show as soon as you are set up again. Hope to see you guys online from uh, the outskirts of Austin in the near future. All right. Thanks, Greg. Wow. I'm going to uh, wrap up here with just a few notes on resources that you can look at if you want to learn more about some of the topics that we've discussed today, uh, especially resources that are available on New Ideal. First of all, I want to uh, recommend an article by a uh, former ARI uh, uh, fellow of legal studies, Steve Simpson, wrote an excellent article called Social Media Are Victims, Not Villains in the Russia Scandal. This is something he wrote, I think, maybe uh, three years ago. Uh, in particular, this essay addresses a lot of the questions about Section 230 uh, that we talked about today. Uh, it, it's been argued about for a number of years now. I wrote, an article, I wrote an article called Ominous Threats to the Marketplace of Ideas, which discusses Ayn Rand's own views and gives uh, textual references to the places where she took issue with the accusations that various technology companies of her day were engaging in censorship. In her case, it was the broadcasting companies. Uh, it was the FCC that was accusing the broadcasting companies of censoring because of the way that they uh, decided to select their content. And she, uh, in her characteristic fashion, argued, no, it was actually the FCC that was engaging in censorship because of, because of the kind of threats that it was making against these companies. And then uh, more recently, I, here's an article I just mentioned. I wrote an article called Facebook Censor or a Victim, take up some of the themes that we discussed today, and also talk in particular about uh, the way in which the modern form of government censorship doesn't have to involve a list of banned books, that it can be as simple as making threats to censor, which can have the effect then of bullying companies into self-censoring. Uh, and th this is the more modern form in which uh, censors operate, but it's an even more devastating form because of the kind of uncertainty that it instills in uh, the, the companies and the content providers. 
So that's more on that. Uh, if you like these new ideal broadcasts and you'd like to be able to follow us more regularly, the best way to do that right now is to follow us on YouTube. Please hit that red subscribe button. And please then be sure also to hit that uh, bell, which will give you notifications whenever we go live, whenever we post new videos. If you have any comments about the episode that you saw today, or you have ideas for future episodes, great place to send us email is newideal at einrand.org. I get all those emails and I go through all of them and I respond to many. And then finally, just to take us out, one last reminder, new ideal usually happens on Mondays or Wednesdays, Mondays and or Wednesdays. We try to go at least once a week, sometimes more. That's at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And again, I'll remind you our topics for next week. Monday, June 8th, we'll discuss, is there a right to mass protest? That will be a conversation between Ankar Gatte, uh, my colleague Aaron Smith. And then Wednesday, June 10th, we'll discuss, can the real meaning of a religion be hijacked? That will be a conversation between me and my colleague, Elon Giorno. So thanks again, everyone. Uh, I know this is a Friday. We don't usually do broadcasts on Friday. There's been a lot of news lately, worthy of comment. We hope that you'll continue to follow us as we continue to comment. So thanks very much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.